Good morning once again, and I am so excited to get to share God's Word with you today. Would you open your copy of God's Word to the book of James? James, we're going to be continuing in our study of our series that we entitled Get Wise, and I want to remind you of a couple of resources we have while you're turning to James chapter 1. I want to remind you that we have these wonderful James Scripture journals, which we're giving away to anybody who comes. Uh, You can take this. It's got the entire text of the book of James, but inside it has note pages, and you can follow along there and write your own notes. Of course, you can follow along online always uh, through the YouVersion app by simply hunting down the events and seeing Redeemer Baptist Church. And here's another resource we want to remind you of, and that is that we have these wonderful invitation cards that have some information about this series. It's got the series logo on there, Get Wise. And you can take these to your friends and invite them to come and be part of this study. So we want to encourage you to do that. As we have been thinking about this idea that James is a New Testament book of wisdom, we want to contemplate what does it mean to live a truly wise life, a life that isn't caught up in the storms and chaos of ordinary living, but a way that we can live in light of what God's truth is, how to live in a God-driven, God-given way. So I invite you to read. We're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to pick it up uh, in James chapter 1, verse 12, as James picks up that theme again. And then we're going to skip over to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. One of the things you'll notice about James as a pastor and a teacher is that he understood the importance of the way that people learn and the way that people are discipled. He didn't just teach them something once, but he kept coming back to the same themes and reinforcing and challenging people in their learning. And so he understood how we all learn together and how we can be reminded of these truths over and over again. So James is going to do that throughout his book. And so he's going to be addressing the theme of steadfastness in life's trials in all of these passages. Let's read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And then in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May He add His blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When we think about wisdom, I want to remind you what we are talking about. Wisdom is not simply knowledge. 
It's not simply the ideas that are good to follow. It's not merely good advice. Wisdom is God's Word enacted. And we talked about how Jesus Himself is the wisdom of God. And that's how we know what wisdom really is. Wisdom is God's knowledge applied to the reality of living, and it's God's wisdom, or is God's knowledge applied to the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. It's the how, right? And let me just say to you as a pastor that society has increasingly lost a sense of wisdom. We have lost the idea that we're to pursue wisdom. We live in a society where sound bites and news clips and TikTok videos can dominate our mental space. And the challenge there is to say, how much of this is actually worth living out, if any of it? And what are the consequences for these sound bites, these quick clips, these quick thoughts. And in contrast to that, Scripture and Jesus Himself reveal to us a way of living that is radically different from what the world in any culture, in any time, will call us to live in, because it's the way of God. So, wisdom is knowing how to do life God's way. And today, we're going to see these themes in these sections of James that we've been studying. We're going to see that godly wisdom includes a joyful way to think about trials. It's going to include a helpful way to think about endurance or steadfastness, and it's going to include a hopeful way to think about blessing. And finally, we're going to see how it includes an essential way to think about God. So James wants us to grasp these things, and so we're going to see a joyful way to think about trials, a helpful way to think about endurance, a hopeful way to think about blessing, and an essential way to think about God. What does it mean to think about trials in a joyful way? Now, James says very clearly, James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of many kinds.'" or various kinds. And the word there in Greek is various colored or multicolored. It's a rainbow of trials in your life, right? That's the picture. And that includes, of course, financial distress, relational problems. It includes job struggles. We live in a world full of thorns and thistles. It includes physical ailments. James is very realistic about the world in which we lived. And he says, I want you to count it all joy when you encounter all of the various kinds of problems that life has for you. And he says, and that is wisdom. What? Notice also the word there, count, or New American Standard says, consider. It means to think this way. It means to make a choice, a conscious decision to look at the many colored trials of your life, the difficulties of life, and say, I'm going to count these things as joy. What? Is this stoicism? Is this Buddhist uh, reality thinking where you sort of just go, Well, all of life is pain, and so you just have to suffer through it and bear through it and try and be the best person that you can be until you get lifted into some nirvana state? Is that what James is arguing? The answer is no. Do not buy into Stoicism. Do not buy into Buddhist thinking. James understands clearly that this world is broken and fallen. The question is, how is the Christian to enter into this world and recognize that even in the midst of the many colored trials of life, that God is at work. And because of the reality of God, we can approach any trial, whether it's illness or relational difficulty or financial difficulty or struggles that are within us, things that we wish we weren't doing, that we end up doing, we can encounter all of these trials and temptations in life and realize that God is at work. So let's take a look at some of the things that James and other biblical writers point out to us that point us towards joy. 
uh, James is going to point out that God uses our trials to shape our character. He understands this reality. If you go to the very next verse, he says, the testing or trialing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. This is sort of uh, the, a good image that you could think there is how they make hardened uh, metal weapons or metal objects, right? They pass it through fire and then through a process of forging it and then plunging it into cold water and then taking it out and beating on it again and again and again until you have a very condensed and strong form of metal. And that's the image that James wants you to be grasping here. He says, there is a reason you are going through the hammer of life, And it is because God is using these trials to shape your character, to produce in you the kind of person that holds true, that endures no matter what, that lasts. Now, the Apostle Paul said something very similar to the Roman church. By the way, Peter did as well, and you can see the reference there in your notes. Paul says this to the Roman church. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Are we masochists as Christians? Do we get off on life's pain? Do we enjoy being victims? Is that what Paul is saying? No. He's saying we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something about suffering. Suffering produces endurance or steadfastness, and that endurance produces character. It forges us into the kind of person that God wants us to be, and character produces hope. Now, can I just point out to you that this is not automatic? Many people go through trials And they don't turn to God, and they fall apart. There are people who have suffered all of their lives, and they're in their 50s and their 60s or in their 70s, and frankly, they don't have any more character than they did when they were 15. This doesn't happen automatically. This happens when people recognize in faith that God is at work and seek the development and work of the Holy Spirit in their life and say, God, I am going through a trial right now and I want your purposes to be accomplished in this trial, through this difficulty. I want my life to be changed. I want you to forge in me the character that you want to create. See, as Christians, we are not recognizing some passive force of the universe, some cosmic simple reality. We're recognizing the person of God is at work, and He has a goal and an objective for who we are. Specifically, we can see that God is not just simply creating character. He's using our trials to grow us into His image, to make us look like Him. So, if you read in James 1.4, the very next verse, James says, let steadfastness have its full effect, its intended result, so that you can be perfect and complete, or as other scriptures, I think, more accurately translate these Greek words, so that you can be mature, so you can be a mature person and whole. Not a person with disintegrity, but with actual integrity of life. So, you have this steadfastness that we are to let have its full effect so that we can become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you want to be like Jesus, or do you want an easy life? It's not a trick question. See, many Americans think they want to be like Jesus. What they mean is they want to be like Jesus in His miracles and in His power over nature and in His power to handle any situation, but they do not want to enter into the mocking, the spitting, the beating, the crucifixion, and the dying to self. And Jesus said, you can't follow me if you aren't willing to die. And if we are dying through the trials, the old man being crucified and a new person being forged, 
new person emerging. That person is to look like Jesus Christ. So, uh, Paul would write to the Corinthians, we have born the image of the man of dust. We all look like Adam and Eve, right? We have an, an, a beginning point. They were created in the image of God. They chose to believe the lies of Satan in the garden. They emerged from the garden, fallen and broken, and we have borne that image all of our days. But that's not the end of the story. So also shall we bear the image of heaven. As we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with God the Father through the working of the Holy Spirit, something begins to happen to us. We begin to look more and more like Jesus and the mechanism that God uses to make us look like Jesus is the same mechanism that He used to bring His Son to completion. And that is pain. That is difficulty. That is trial. That's our goal, is to grow up to look like Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Again, it's so easy to wander off into some sort of masochistic or victim mentality here. Uh, think of it this way. When a coach at the beginning of a season gets his athletes or her athletes in front of him, they are going to make those athletes experience pain. They are going to send them through all kinds of trials. They're going to make them run. They're going to make them lift weights. They're going to make them do all kinds of movement-based activities. We're going to train them over and over and over again to hit a ball or to swim a lap or to move in a certain direction to, become, to give them all of the fine and gross motor skills they need. And every single day, those athletes will come home in pain. They will be tired. They will be worn out. But the objective of the coach is not the pain. The objective of the coach is to equip them for the game. It's to train them to become a person who can handle the reality of the game to which they have been called, right? Jesus lived that perfect life, and God is shaping us like a coach so that we look like our older brother, Jesus. We speak the truth and love to one another. Just one more example here. Paul saying, in order to do what? So that we can grow up into Him who is the head, into Christ. Listen, too many people think that church is about finding a place that makes you religiously comfortable. If I let you remain comfortable, I'm a terrible spiritual leader. Don't follow me. My job, as I myself am being made uncomfortable by the Word of God in prayer, is to make all of you incredibly uncomfortable. Not for the purpose of pain, not for the purpose of discomfort, but for the purpose of shaping all of us into the image of Jesus Christ, to help us grow up into His image. So, God's using our trials to shape our character, to shape us into His image, but He's using our trials to bring us to Him, to bring us to Jesus. See, here's the thing. Let's be really, really honest, right? As long as life is going along pretty good, I don't think I need God very much. And I don't do a lot of growing. Then I get the cancer diagnosis. Or my kid goes prodigal. Or my job falls apart, my career, my vocation, everything I've ever dreamed of. And all of a sudden, the God who seems so distant and often unnecessary, well, He's essential all of a sudden, isn't He? When you don't have anything else but Jesus, you come to Him. You cry out in prayer. Notice the sequence here where James says, let steadfastness have its full effect so it can be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he says, but if you lack wisdom, go to God. If you need to know how to live in the midst of these trials, what's going to be the effect? You're going to go to Jesus. Jesus, I don't know what to do. My bank account is empty. Jesus, I don't know what to do. My marriage is broken. Jesus, I don't know what to do. My children are driving me crazy. 
Jesus, I don't know what to do. I've in this difficult trial. Well, listen, this is one reason that so many people don't grow up to be the image of Christ. They don't go to Jesus. They seek wisdom from their own mind or from the counsel of foolish other people who aren't following Jesus. They seek the wisdom of this earth, but not the eternal wisdom. They don't go to Jesus. They fail to meet that purpose that God has for them. If you are in a trial right now, and I know many of you are, I know the various trials you are facing, let me assure you of this. Jesus is using this trial to make you come to Him. He wants you to come before His throne. James is going to reinforce this over and over again in several different ways. He's going to say in James 4 too, you do not have because you do not ask. In James chapter 5, verse 13, he's going to say, are you suffering? What should you do when you are suffering? Go to Jesus, pray. Go to God the Father, pray. Cry out for the Holy Spirit's work. James chapter 5, verse 14, he's going to say, are you sick? Call for the elders, because this is not just something we do as individuals, but as a community of faith. We go to God together, call the elders, and let them pray. We ask together. Together, we go before God. Can I just remind you of this? You serve a jealous God. And too often, our health, our wealth... Our career success, our ordinary blessings that God gives us as good things, they actually get in the way of us building a relationship with God. James is going to say, don't you know, God's yearning jealously for you. And that jealousy allows Him to bring us to a place that brings us into trial so that we will pursue Him where we can receive more grace than that trial has. So, this is a joyful way to think about trials. There's a way to have real joy in the midst of your trials. But there's also a helpful way to think about endurance itself. What does it mean to endure? James is going to use this phrase, steadfast, the word endure, to stay steady in a certain place. Well, we are to stay in joy and faith. Now, I know lots of Christians that as soon as a trial comes along, joy runs out the window. And they begin immediately to flee to unbelief. I don't know. God must not be there. My life is hard. Really? The God who created the universe, who knit every single you know, cell in your body together, who made every molecule there is, who knows every sub-sub-sub-atomic particle that we haven't even yet discovered, the God who's reigned over all eternity and time and space, that God forgot you. Do you see how ridiculous that is? But that's what we do. Our joy and our faith go out the window. We, we lose that. Peter, who writes extensively about trials, says this. He says, listen, in the good news of Jesus, the idea that you have been born again by a work of the Holy Spirit through the gracious work of Jesus Christ and brought to God the Father, in that gospel, you rejoice. You stay steadfast in that joy in all of your trials, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary... There are some trials that are necessary. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what my point is. When trials happen to you, does your joy stay steady or go up, or does it go down? When life difficulties occur, does it drive you quickly to unbelief or deeper into relationship with God? Now, this could be an ordinary trial. You get a flat tire, you get into an argument with your spouse, your, your kid mouths off or gets in trouble at school. 
You fail an exam. And all of those ordinary things, joy, up, steady, down. How about your faith? There's a steadfastness to the mature Christian's life that is not rocked by the realities of everything that happens to them. It's not just steadfastness in joy and in faith. It's a steadfastness in proclamation, even if that means that you are persecuted. Now, American Christians, hear me again. You are not being persecuted. There is no one in America, in the United States, that's being actively persecuted for your faith. I'm sorry, I don't care what right-wing political hosts tell you. That is not true. You want to know how I know? Because I lived with and worked with people who are being genuinely persecuted. Don't dishonor their persecution. They have truly, genuinely been sped upon, mocked, humiliated, beaten, exiled from their families. This last week, one of our partners that many of you have met with through our small groups went to her family home knowing that her father might kill her. Don't tell me you know what persecution is. Loss of your political party's alignment is not persecution. It's just part of the broken world. So why aren't we steadfast, bold, faithful in our proclamation? That's what God wants us to be. Not just steadfast in our joy and our faith, but steadfast in our proclamation. We know this because James says this, He says, you want an example of suffering? Here's your example of suffering and patience. Take the prophets who spoke. Notice what the prophets do. They speak in the name of the Lord. If you want to know what happens to the prophets, go to Hebrews chapter 11, and you will see these amazing things. The prophets raised the dead. The prophets defeated armies. The prophets quenched the mouth of lions and walked through fire. The prophets did these amazing things. And some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others were mocked, flogged. They were chained imprisoned, they were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, that means because they didn't have clothes, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them even as they wandered the earth. James says steadfastness isn't just about your own internal joy and faith. It's about your faithfulness to take the good news of Jesus and overflow with it to the world. So, brothers and sisters, how much more should we be overflowing with the good news of Jesus in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and with our families, knowing that we, not any of us, have suffered any of these things? And that's what steadfastness looks like. In fact, Jesus would say, when you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, we're to be steadfast in our faith and in our joy. We're to be steadfast in our proclamation. We're to be steadfast in our loving service. Now, here's something I want you to understand about pain and life's difficulties. The amazing thing is, as soon as we experience pain, what do we want to do? We want to shut down, go inward to ourselves, and be served. (laughs) I serve people when I feel good, right? Not when I'm feeling bad. Pain makes us narcissistic and selfish, apart from the Holy Spirit but we're called to be people who are steadfast in our loving service. Over and over again, Scripture reminds of this. There's there's numerous Scripture references we have in your notes. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Peter says, Let those who suffer according to God's will, and there is no suffering that's apart from God's will because He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So if your suffering is according to God's will, Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while sitting around and complaining and grumbling and doing nothing. That is not what that says. 
You entrust your pain, your situation, your character development to God, and you go do good. Go do good to other people. Get your eyes off yourself and find a way to serve somebody in the midst of your trials. It will miraculously change you. So many of us huddle up, hidden in our own little minds and hearts, or even physically in our houses when we're experiencing pain, and we're going, oh, I'm suffering. And we aren't thinking about the suffering of anybody else, nor are we seeking to do good to them. But that is not the kind of godly wisdom we are called to. We are called to serve in all situations at all times. We're to be steadfast, not only in our faith and in our joy, in our proclamation, in our service, but in love of God and others. See, here's the thing. If your trials make you love God and other people less, then your faith was perhaps never really about Jesus anyway. Because Jesus suffered like no one has ever suffered. And day by day, His love of God was steadfast. And His love for you and me was steadfast. Right? So, James addresses this. Look, James chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Be patient in the midst of your trials and establish your hearts, lock your hearts down, make your core commitment to be what you love. Jesus, I don't know the outcome of my medical diagnosis. Jesus, I don't know the outcome of this financial struggle. Jesus, I don't know the outcome of this relational difficulty, but I love you. And I will love the people you bring into my life. I will establish my heart there. And see, trials can lead us away from the love of God and others. They so often do. That same narcissism that makes us want to be served and comforted ourselves makes us not want to really love God very well. Jesus spoke about this. Matthew 24, you find Jesus saying, because lawlessness increased difficulties in this world, people aren't following God because people, you know, are, are not following Jesus. And by the way, let me just remind you, Ecclesiastes reminds us it is not wisdom to say why were things better in the olden days. They weren't. They may have been better for you, but they promise you they weren't better for somebody else elsewhere in the world, okay? But because lawlessness, the sinfulness of man increases and grows throughout the world, Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. What's the effect of sin rising? Our love for God can be diminished. Our love for others can be weakened. But the one who endures, notice what the thing is, what are you supposed to endure in? Love. The one who endures in love will be saved. We need God to refresh and establish our love. I need God to do this. My, my trials, my difficulties, they drive me away from loving God and other people. So we need God to come along and refresh us and establish us in our love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12-13 through 13, the apostle writing there to the Thessalonian church says this, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. By the way, great way to pray for your fellow church members. God, today, make Gaynell's love for her neighbors on the Carrizzo Plains abound. God, today, as Theo goes to Trelleborg, Make His love abound. Because we all need that. We need the Holy Spirit to refresh us in love for one another and for all. And we want God to do what? Establish our hearts. The very things that James was just saying. God, I know my love is, as the, as the hymnody, uh, a hymn writer wrote, uh, they said, my, Lord, my, my heart is prone to wander. 
prone to leave the God I love. Oh God, establish my heart and establish the hearts of my brothers and sisters so that we could be blameless in holiness before our God and Father. All right. So, there is a joyful way to think about trials. There is a helpful way to think about endurance. And there is a hopeful way to think about blessing. Now, see, up to this point, we are looking at at some of the hard things that James has to say. But don't get the idea that James wants us to grit our teeth and, and just sort of grin and bear it and have that stiff upper lip in the midst of this. Oh, no, he wants us to recognize that in the suffering, there is blessing. And it's the blessing of God that gives us a hope in the midst of these trials. There's something we're looking forward to. Some of that we've already talked about. God's changing me. God's making me new. God's making me into the image of Jesus. God's helping me love people, right? So James wants us to say, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There is a blessing to a stable life. Anybody want to be the person who gets knocked around by all of life's difficulties? Do you want to be the person who has a meltdown because you got a bill you didn't expect? Do you want to be the person whose character collapses because your car broke? Nobody likes that person. I don't like that person. And I see him often in the mirror. I look in the mirror and I go, I don't like that guy. He gets tossed around. Somebody, you know, doesn't do something the way he wants and he gets annoyed and his whole life seems to to be just like the rest of the day is carried away by emotions and anxiety and fear and frustration. And I know I'm not the only person here, right? I mean, that'd be one of you that's like that. But we don't want to be that person. There is a blessing that comes from being a stable person in the midst of the waves. Now, I know not all of you are reality TV fans, but a few weeks ago on the reality TV show Survivor, there's this really, really big muscular guy named Jonathan, right? And he's out in the middle of the ocean. Some of you are laughing because you know. There's this guy, and he's huge, right? He's like a fortress. And the amazing thing is in this one game that they were playing, all of these other players are being knocked about by these enormous waves. And no one was being able to complete the task. In fact, for the first time in Survivor history, they called the game and stopped part of the game because the rest of the players couldn't complete it. Except Jonathan. It was amazing to watch this guy in the midst of these enormous waves not only carry himself, but his entire team through the entire first leg of this, immovable in the waves. And I thought, I want to be like that guy. (laughs) I don't want the trials of life to knock me around. Well, James talks about this kind of stability, right? He uses that specific analogy. He says that if we're the kind of person who isn't going to God, we're not remaining steadfast, we're the person who's constantly doubting the reality of God, well, guess what? We're going to be like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We're just going to be going backwards and forwards. But, but that person is a double-minded person, and they're unstable in all their ways. There is a blessing that is found in being a stable person. And then there's more of a blessing. There's a blessing of seeing God at work in your life right now. How many of you would like to see God show up and do amazing things. Yes? Folks, have you ever read a novel that begins and ends with something like this? There was a man, there was a woman, nothing happened to them. The end. No. For there to be a hero that shows up and rescues that person, there has to be a trial, a difficulty, right? 
You want to see God show up in your life. Guess what? He's going to show up in the midst of those trials and those difficulties. That's where the adventure is. There's a blessing of seeing God at work in our lives. So James says, listen, you're in the midst of the trial. Be patient. God's at work. And he uses a farming analogy from from Palestine where you would have these early and late monsoons that were critical to all of the ground coming to bear fruit in that land. And he says, listen, it's not like God saved you at the beginning and there's not a later rain or later blessing in your life. You want to see this rhythm of life where God is coming to you and blessing you and pouring out. And there may be seeming times where there's no rain. It doesn't seem like God has worked, but He is. Be patient. The later rains are coming. Be watchful. Look for that. Ready to go because God is ready to show up. He's he's referring, by the way, almost certainly to this passage from the book of Deuteronomy where he talks about how God shows up. God Himself says, God gives the rain in its season, the early rain and the later rain, so that you can gather in all that is fruitful, your grain, your wine, and your oil. Do you want God to show up in your life? Or do you want to just manage it yourself? Well, I, I uh, never had a bill, never had a crisis, always been in good health. Who's that story about? But when you say, man, I got myself in trouble. I owed a bunch of money. And I didn't know how I was going to pay it. And then God. Or I got myself in a big mess relationally. And I didn't know how to fix my marriage or my kids. And then God. I didn't know how to fix the brokenness that came between me and another person. But then God. Do you see how there's a blessing in that story? The blessing of seeing God show up in our present lives. And and brothers and sisters, that's not a story that ends. It's a story that keeps on going. There's a blessing to knowing that God is in the business of redeeming all things. He takes all things that are broken and changes them and renews them and uses them. So there's this blessing in there. Uh, James says, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Wait for God to show up. But it's not just waiting forever. There is an end to this story. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And when He comes back, there will be glory, there will be rewards. So God is in the business of making these things new. Right? Look at Romans 8.18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God is taking all that is broken, as Jesus says, I'm making all these things new. And that includes your cancer It includes your relational brokenness. It includes your empty bank accounts. It is being made new. Not always the way we want it to be, but always in a way that it would be if we knew and wanted all that God wants. Does that make sense to you? This blessing brings us to a confidence in God's rewards. Are you confident that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? James had this confidence. So listen, James 1.12, blessed, who's blessed, is the person with no trials. No. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Listen, the Bible is unashamed to talk to you about eternal lasting rewards. Jesus said, stockpile those eternal rewards. Paul's going to write to the Corinthians. He's going to say, you're enduring in this race for an imperishable crown. 
writing to Timothy, he's going to say, Timothy, it's the crown of righteousness. Peter will write of this and he will say to the church, it's a crown of great glory. Brothers and sisters, there is a blessing coming that is bigger than anything this world's pain can take from you. That's why the author of Hebrews goes on to say this, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you can receive what is promised. Paul would write to Timothy and he would say, you know who gets the crown? The person who stays in the race. Don't let your faith and your joy be determined by the trials of life. Okay, this brings us quickly to an essential way to think about God. See, we had a, we had a joyful way to think about trials. We have a, a helpful way to think about endurance, and we have a hopeful way to think about blessing. But folks, this book is about God. So what is James trying to teach us about God? Go, go to James chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Okay, what are the people? The people with no trials and difficulties? No. The people who are blessed are the people who stay steadfast, right? Who endure. Then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Have you read Job? What's your takeaway? God is compassionate and merciful? If not, maybe you didn't understand the book of Job. James says the entire lesson of the book of Job is that God is compassionate and merciful. You want to see the purpose of God in the life of Job, it's to reveal His compassion and His mercy. Now, earlier Rachel pointed this out in the children's message, so I just want, I want to bring us right there. Is your God, in the midst of your trials and difficulties, is He less than loving, less than gracious, less than merciful? God is never less than loving, gracious, and merciful, ever. It does not matter what you are going through. He is never less than those things. And we know this because this is how He has revealed Himself down throughout the millennia. God said to Moses as He passes before Him, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the I Am who is I Am, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is, and who He is does not change based on our current pain level. God is never less than loving, gracious, and merciful. Therefore, everything that you and I experienced is either, because of God's love, it's either lovingly purposed or permitted for our good. Everything. My empty bank account? Yes. My flat tire? Yes. My broken relationship with my child? Yes. It doesn't feel like love, God. Oh, my child, it is. I know that we struggle to recognize that reality, but you and I need to remind ourselves that this is who God is in all situations, at all times, in all places. God did not stop loving Job just because He allowed Satan to afflict him. The love of God was steadfast. Romans chapter 8, verses 35, verse 37 through 39 we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Notice not some things, all things work together for good. And then he goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Are these things going to mean that God doesn't love me anymore? What's Paul's response? No, 
Can you hear him yelling? No. In all of these things, in them, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, he says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have never experienced a day apart from the love of God. You've never experienced a situation apart from the love of God. And Job understood that reality. How do we know? Because when the raiders came and they took away his donkeys and his oxen, and when lightning fell from heaven and wiped out his entire massive sheep flock, and when other raiders came and stole all his camels, and when the wealthiest man in the world became overnight bankrupt, and when God allowed Satan to send an inland wind, a derecho, to wipe out all of his children in a single incident. This is Job's response. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job understood that the love of God was not contingent on the blessings that he had received. That does not mean it did not hurt. Keep reading the book and you'll see it hurt plenty. And this continues. When Satan afflicts him again and makes him ritually and socially unclean when pus is oozing from his body and he cannot come before God in ritual manner and he cannot come before other people because they won't touch him because he's got an unclean skin disease. And when he is literally sitting in the ash heap or the garbage heap of life, scraping at these painful sores that afflicted him from head to toe, and his wife says to him, this such an encouraging woman, She says, why don't you go ahead and curse God and die? This is his response. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job understood that God's love was not contingent on his blessed outward circumstance. Is that the way you think about the love of God? God is not only never less than loving, gracious, and merciful, He is also never less than just. He's never less than just. Okay? I've got a pastor friend right now, uh, Pastor Santiago Rodriguez, this week. Uh, He works for GCA, uh, works up in the Monterey, Salinas area. And I asked him, I said, hey, Santiago, how are you doing? He said, better than I deserve. See, he understood this reality and does understand this reality. Every gift that we've got, we're not entitled to it. We're sinners who come before a holy God. We don't deserve to breathe the next breath. We're not entitled to some better life. God is never less than just. When God revealed Himself to Moses as loving and merciful and gracious, He also said this, I'm the God who will not clear the guilty. Every sin must be punished. Every transgression must be accounted for. Otherwise, I would be less than just. That means that unrepentant people will suffer the due consequences of their sin. That's the nature of a holy God. In fact, writing to the Romans, Paul's going to say this, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience or steadfastness in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Folks, some people are receiving in this world the beginning of what they have sown 
and that is they have sown to the wrath of God, and they are beginning to experience it now, and they will continue to experience it forever. God is never less than just. And for people who have come by faith to receive the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, His substitution on their behalf so they don't have to uh, receive the just penalty for their sins, guess what? We receive discipline. And many of our trials are acts of God's discipline upon us for our sin, our unbelief. Not just individual or gross big sins or one thing that we did, but, but found in the way that coaches want to discipline us and shape us into that new character. We'll be disciplined for our holiness. So the author of Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines the one He loves. Notice, His love isn't gone. He disciplines the one He loves. He chastises every son or daughter whom He receives. He disciplines us for our good so that we can share in His holiness. So, God is never less than loving, God is never less than just, and God is never less than generous. He's never less than generous. James chapter 1, verse 16, we're going to study this more, but James says there, do not be deceived. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Don't believe the empty philosophies of this world. Don't believe the person who is inside your head who's trying to tell you that you deserve something better. Every good and perfect gift, which all of life is a gift of God, His common grace, is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. God is steadfast, and He is steadfast always in His generosity. God never actually gives to His children what we actually deserve. In fact, He's generous in His grace and in His goodness. Job, at the end of the story, doesn't earn God's favor. He doesn't, by the way, continue in his model not speaking against God. He says some things about God that are patently not true, about God's injustice and how it seems and feels to be there. But he receives this, generosity, kindness, grace. The Lord restores the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than in his beginning. And you know what the greatest blessing was? He said, Job, let me tell you who I am. Through it all, Job learns who God is. And in his lamenting and in his complaining, when when Scripture says early on that he did not sin in what he said, notice that 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 comes back in the end. And and through the lamenting, he goes to God and he says, God, are you like this in this sort of way that's like, are you this unjust God? And And God's like, no, I'm not. I'm not. And Job is recognizing this reality of who God is in all his goodness. So, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to take away. Whatever situation you're in today, it's in the steadfastness of Jesus that we see the intersection of these three realities. Do you want to see the love of God? Look at Jesus. He was steadfast his whole life, perfectly obedient, living the life that you and I could not have lived. For you and for me, all the way through the cross, for you and for me, out of the grave, for you and for me. That's steadfastness. Do you want to see the justice of God? Look at Jesus. There on the cross, Jesus endures all of God's justice so that all sins could be paid for, so that we don't have to pay for those sins. You want to see the generosity of God? Listen, if He's given you and me His Son, how would He not also along with Him give us all things? Your God is generous. That's where you see this reality of God. The author of Hebrews puts that all together 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to endure, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes on Jesus. That's what He's saying. And then go run the race of faith, knowing that He has been steadfast. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I are never going to be perfectly steadfast, but we have an older brother who has been for you and for me. And if we will receive Him and believe on Him, we can receive the grace of God. Let's pray and ask God to do a work in each of our lives. Father God, take now these words, make them fruitful in our lives, minds, and hearts, that in all things you might be exalted, Take my weak, broken, and imperfect words, imperfect expressions of truth, and make them fruitful to give us clarity and insight. We ask this all for your glory. Be generous unto us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.